Hello, and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. We are greeting you here on our first ever Christmas special, and we have picked a distinctly secular poem for all those who do not celebrate Christmas. So it is a winter close to the solstice special. We got a good poem for the winter. And although this will not be reflected on when you listen to it, unless you listen to it on a Sunday, but we are recording on a Sunday. And the poem we got for you today is a classic, iconic American poem, Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Who is a classic, iconic American poet. Yes. He was the first black U.S. Poet Laureate. So early, it was not even called Poet Laureate at the time. I think it was a, a consultant in poetry, which actually sounds a little more interesting. I would, I would rather consult the Library of Congress on poetry than just be some sort of laurel-bearing, you know, figure. It does sound pretty cool. And like, what other literary discipline gets its own consultant? I know that's true. I mean, I guess you could also say which literary discipline gets its own laureate, but like being the special consultant on poetry to the Library of Congress just seems like, ooh. Yeah. Nice. I know. Very nice. But yeah, I mean, Hayden was, yeah, he, you know, he wrote basically in the mid 1900s. And yeah, he's one of the most in the kind of standard white, mostly white canons and anthologies, Hayden, it's like Hayden and Langston Hughes and then maybe Gwendolyn Brooks um, are like the select few that get consistently anthologized. He is just a wonderful poet. And this is one of those poems that I've known about for a while. And it's like, it's something that the best poems feel deeper and more like resonant the more you, you know, like some, some poems, some works of art have a great first impression and then they kind of lose their luster and some really deepen over time. And I feel like this is one that really does that for me. So let's just get going into it. This is Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue black cold. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call and slowly I would rise and dress 
fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? It's so good. I really liked what you were saying about how revisiting even a, an incredibly classic poem like this deepens over time. Cause I very much felt that way. Like when we talked about Mary Oliver's wild geese, it's a poem that you kind of, you remember the main standout lines from it becomes ingrained in you where you feel like it's familiar, but when you do actually revisit it and spend time with it, there's so many more depths that you can just find your way into. And I, I felt myself having that experience as we, you know, as I was preparing for this episode, because this is one of those poems where when you mentioned it, I was like, oh, yeah, I like that poem a lot. That's a good one. There'll be a lot to talk about. <laughs> and then when I actually sat down with it, I was like, whoa, there's a lot to talk about. This is a yeah. really good poem. You know, it's just a whole other level uh, of appreciation that can accrue over time. No, it's really true. I, I like I feel like, yeah, it's and it's one of those that like is so um you know it's pretty well known and so it's like kind of people you know it, it like comes up sort of like every now and then and people like pay attention to like a new detail of the poem um and like why that part's interesting and it's one of those that's like it's got so much into it that you can like spend a long time like focusing on like you know one word or one phrase um and like you know how that adds such a resonant you know an extra layer of of meaning or resonance or something um but yeah it's like so yeah uh, maybe we could do a quick narrative play by play um you know it's <laughs> yeah i i was thinking about the winter um but you know the speaker is kind of remembering um, you know, being a child and the, his father and kind of just this sort of thankless task that, um, you know, every Sunday his, his father basically warmed the house and, and, you know, it was a while ago, you know, so the technology with, you know, the, the, you know, um, he had to make an actual <laughs> fire to heat the house and also speaks to like their, you know, um, I mean, Hayden, you know, grew up pretty working class in Detroit, as I recall. Um, and so that it, it also suggests their, you know, economic position. And yeah, and then it's kind of just remembering the, the, that Sunday moment, and then kind of how as a kid, the speaker wasn't very appreciative or warm with um, his dad, um, which, you know, in the, the main reason why from the poem that we get is that fearing the chronic angers of that house, um, which is such a, um, just a stunning line, I think. Um, but then it kind of ends with this reflection of like, you know, what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Um, that, there was kind of uh, this warming the house and then waking up the kids, you know, um, after it was warm was this kind of lonely act of love um, that he's the speaker sort of now an adult and older kind of appreciates more um, with time. I mean, like on a, on a, <laughs> on a personal level, obviously, the circumstances of the of the poet and the speaker are much different than mine, but I do feel like I'm I'm at a point in my life where I'm sort of thinking back to being a kid and like the things that I didn't appreciate, you know, that my parents were doing, um, and the kind of the thankless labor. Um, that often sort of goes into being a parent. Um, and so that was, that, that aspect of it really was striking me. Um, 
this time around. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I, I just, I have a lot of thoughts, but uh, curious where, where your, where your mind is going with this one. Uh, well, unsurprisingly, a lot of different places. Um, <laughs> I, one of the things I was really struck by, especially as you were doing the sort of narrative play by play is how effectively the narrative is conveyed in the poem without it being pedantic. Um, because that can be a really, really big challenge as a writer when you're trying to convey a pretty linear story, but you want to do it evocatively rather than rote. Um, and this succeeds so well at that. And not only does it succeed at doing that, but the ways in which it tells the story evocatively uh, are brilliant because just down to the word by word choice, you have words that tell you what was going on and add crucial details without explaining it. So you get something like Sundays too, my father got up early and put on and put his clothes on in the blue black cold. And the phrasing of blue black cold, blue black as a descriptor of cold does so much work because immediately you're conjuring images of bruising, like it's not only is he getting up and doing work, but it's work that hurts. And then in the next line you hear about cracked and aching hands. It also puts in the seeds of the idea of frostbite and being frostbitten. Again, the next line that immediately pays off with the cracked and aching hands. And blue-black is also the color of really early mornings because it's dark. And that one word as a modifier for cold that immediately has context built around it that you're already feeling and the number of times that that happens in the poem with different very small and important word choices, even down to, I connected to the first line of the second stanza where I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking, Again, coming right after talking about hands, it's like the, the sharpness of the wood and the cutting and the potential for injury and uh, the hard labor that this person is putting themselves through is really just repeatedly uh, built up without you almost noticing or feeling it other than experiencing it as you read through the poem and then later realizing all of the work that was done to give you that experience by the writer. And I think that there's sort of on a entire poem level, there's kind of a way that that operates where that last line uh, of love's austere and lonely offices, love is work in this poem. And of course it happens in an office and love is lonely in this poem. There's no one else around because the act of love that's being done is, you know, thankless and solitary. Um, but it comes from such a genuine place for the person doing it, or at least that's the impression that you get, or that's the impression that the speaker had as a child, whether they were realizing it or not, they were noticing that this happened every Sunday as it was happening, even if they weren't building the sort of big contextual meaning around it that they now can. Um, and so that was something that really struck me because that last line is so powerful, but just, the way that it thematically hits the love and work idea while still being just a beautiful and evocative phrase all on its own is so masterful. Uh, and also just sort of overall, <laughs> this had me thinking of uh, the love languages that like circulate uh, yeah. online and the, um, the idea that acts of service could be someone's love language. But I think you get the impression that, uh, the speaker in this poem might be more of like a words of affirmation sort of person. Um, or that at the very least you get the strong sense that there was a disconnect in terms of how love was being expressed and how uh, the speaker wanted love to be given to them. Uh, and that tension and rub that exists in the poem without ever being made particularly explicit other than in the, the chronic angers of that house line uh, is also really telling because that's, part of I feel like what the adult reckoning is happening is like I wanted to be loved in a certain way and maybe I felt like I wasn't loved because I wasn't getting it that way but I now realize that love was being communicated to me the whole time I just couldn't quite see the ways in which that was happening and that very much is you know again 
it's all over the poem without ever having to be stated, which is the mark of doing good poetry <laughs> or good writing really in general. Um, and yeah, all of that is sort of where I went as I was just marinating in this poem's brilliance. <laughs> I know it's so good. No, I agree with that completely. Yeah, no, I love the attention to blue, black, cold and just the cold in general. It's so, you know, there's three stanzas in the poem um, and the cold, you know, cold as a word appears like one time um, in each stanza and kind of, you know, the, the father has to experience it um, as the blue black cold. Um, and then the second stanza, I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking, um, which is like, again, it's, it's like, you kind of, it's a, it's a, there's a great like sort of sensory interplay kind of, it's like kind of like synesthesia ish, but you know, like you can imagine sort of like wood being chopped or something like that in the splintering and breaking, but it's actually the cold that is being splintered. Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of midway. It's like, he hears the cold sort of, you know, being destroyed. <laughs> yeah. As you were saying, you hear the wood being split for the fires. You hear the fires themselves crackling right. in that description of the cold being banished. It's so, it's so many levels of description that's happening so rapidly in the poem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the, you know, who had, who had driven out the cold, um, it, kind of the last appearance um, in the last stanza. And no, and it's such a good, you know, like, gosh, that last line, I'm sure people have talked about the last line. So I'm sure it's, it's many, many essays have been written on, on it. Um, to me, just the, the most immediate loveliness of it is, is a manner of, of diction and like word choice and, and tone and this idea of distance. Like it, con it contrasts with blue, black, cold, so intensely because you know blue black as is one word it's not hyphenated in the poem it's very visceral and sensory and kind of like gritty um and then the end is like love's austere and lonely offices you know like um the use of austere you know which is like such a you know like high you know $10 word or whatever. Um, and offices, it's, it's has such a remoteness because like, it's not, there's no like physical office per se in the poem that's being described. It's like this figurative office of love. And then too, that it, it contrasts with the, the repetition, which is also something that I think a lot of people have focused on of the, what did I know what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Like there's such a, in repeating that, what did I know? There's such a like, um, the speaker's really urgently kind of grasping at something. And it's this, this rhythmic kind of moment um, that then also has this tension with the, the distance and the kind of like heightened language of, the last line, um, which, you know, works really well for the topic, just in kind of like a, you know, it, it captures the remoteness of the love to the speaker, like at least as a kid, you know. Um, but it also like kind of speaks to yeah, and, and also just like the, the difficulty of accessing it, I think, you know, in the speaker's present day. It's so it's so interesting. And there's just so much like, yeah, just the, the language of, of the poem. So wonderful. Just little things here that, that I know have been commented on before, I think, but like the Sundays to my father got up early, the use of two really captures immediately that it, you get a sense of the father without having like that. He's always getting up early in this 
wretched cold and doing this work during the week. Um, and then, you know, like, um, like chronic angers of that house is like the use of chronic and like, now it's so interesting because now like the term kind of chronic stress, I feel like has started to enter into um, like out of sort of psychology and like public health language into the mainstream. Um, but like the house and also just like the house itself is chronically angry that it's just this pervasive, insistent anger that, you know, in some ways is like not to introduce a like sociological reading of the poem or something, but like in a, a low income family where you have to work so much and it's difficult work and you're also being like black in Detroit and like systemic racism and stuff. It's like, and there's so, there's so much studies, you know, that like chronic stress is, is dispro disproportionately affects, you know, black people in the U S. Um, but like this poem, which um, I don't know, was, was written, you know, decades before I, I at least I think this, the kind of science of the idea being expressed there, um, but uses that same word is so interesting. Um, and, and just so like the idea of like a kid kind of being in their room or whatever, or wherever they were sleeping and like knowing that elsewhere in the house is like the chronic angers um, and being afraid of that is like such a um, like visceral, but also like, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I can just see it so um, intensely. Absolutely. And to have that all consuming anxiety and, and uh, tension there, as you said, there have been studies about what that does to young people. So it becomes these generational mental health and in some cases, physical health impacts of poverty or of, you know, at the very least, you know, food insecurity, housing insecurity, any level of, you know, the insecurity of existing as a black person in Detroit in the 20s and 30s, which would, if, you know, we take the speaker to be Hayden, which I think we do, um, that's basically the timeline you're looking at. And that was a time when a lot of black people were moving to Detroit in kind of a wave of migration to work in Henry Ford's automobile plants. And so this was a time when there was a strong working class black presence growing in Detroit. It was still a time of intense racism. But yeah, no, just the like the all encompassing impacts and the sort of reverberating and generational impacts of that sort of thing are striking. And I think you get a sense of that because this is something that was so impactful on the speaker. They're now reflecting on it in later life. And you get the sense that this poem is the culmination of a lifetime of reflecting on this phenomenon, which is embodied by the experience on Sunday. But part of, I think the reason the poem has such depth to it is because there is a depth of non Sunday specific experience that is being uh, delivered to you through Sunday. So like, as you said, the two in the first line does so much work because basically you learn that the father is always getting up early to go to work, to make money, to do, you know, another version of the work of love's austere and lonely offices, whether it was an office job or not, that's another version of, you know, especially for a couple of generations of uh, men through social messaging around what love looked like, you know, the idea that you go to work, you provide for your family was a very, uh, a big idea tied up with masculinity and masculine self-worth. And you get the sense that that is something, you know, whether or not the father, we don't know explicitly if the father feels that way about himself, but you get that feeling from the poem. Uh, and, and I definitely uh, was reflecting on, you know, what does that then communicate to the speaker as a child about what it means to grow up and be a man and what kind of messages around masculinity are in this poem, which I feel like is a whole level that's going on because this is also a poem about like a father son relationship 
and most depictions of father-son relationships in media, it was interesting. The first connection I made um, was one that I initially tried to move beyond because we've talked about it before and it felt a little bit too obvious, which is um, in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, where it's a man and his son traveling in the post-apocalypse. And part of the reason I made that connection is both because it is such a uh, sort of extended examination of a father-son relationship that's mostly positive, but also because so much of the theme in that book is about carrying the light. And towards the end of the book, you know, I guess spoilers for the road. Do you have to say that? I don't know. Um, but the father <laughs> is like wounded and dying. <laughs> and some of the last interactions he has with his son, uh, he describes him as being... Uh, like he's sort of hallucinating from injury, but he sees him as wreathed in light. And not only is he then carrying this concept of the light forward, but he becomes the embodiment of the light. And he's like a, a fiery, almost angelic presence. And it's it's very beautiful. Um, but particularly in this poem, where like the creation of fires to warm the home is the act of love. And is, I feel like in some way, what the father is then handing over uh, and you get that point of connection where the poem says and polished my good shoes as well and so there is this level of personal attention and you feel like implicitly in doing this every single sunday the repeated routines of a home at some point start to become lessons either do things this way or as you start to notice what the pattern is you decide i don't want to do things that way uh, as like a young person growing up in an environment. And so I was sort of, uh, I was thinking a lot about that level um, and particularly just trying to decipher, given what's in the poem, what, if anything, it was trying to say about masculinity. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and going back to kind of your, the, the thing you were saying before that, although it's all related, there's a relatively well-known study that's about adverse child experiences, um, also known as ACEs, um, which, you know, can include basically, you know, uh, physical, emotional abuse, neglect, um, household violence, also racism, and that there's the more, there's kind of like a list of like 10 ACEs, and the, the power of the study is like um, the number of ACEs that a child has growing up is like really highly correlated to all of these things later in life. Um, some things, you know, from like poor academic achievement, but also like substance abuse, but also phys more physical things like diabetes and heart disease and things like that. Um, and so anyway, um, and it's it, a lot of it has to do with this kind of they, those experiences create toxic stress is kind of the the phrase or whatever um that has yeah um as you were saying you know affects the brain itself and has other sort of you know um like consequences um that really endure um and then there's also this sort of you know especially when we're thinking about like um like black americans or other you know oppressed sort of groups, there's like intergenerational trauma that kind of like is, is passed, you know, in, in the kind of like epigenetic, like um, is, is passed on from generation to generation. Um, and so there's, yeah, um, it's, it's a very like, I like to think about the kind of, um, you know, the sort of, the, the science in the kind of that larger context because it it's like it connects these two things which I think are very um often not connected you know where it's like the 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 science by itself is like you know creates this set of evidence and data that gets close to being able to say like, this is a true thing or whatever, but it doesn't capture the kind of like, what is it like to be a part of that or to have experienced that? And, 
you know, poetry or literature or art by itself can really kind of, you can have this visceral encounter with, you know, this experience or this kind of, you know, really interior sort of sense of someone else. Um, but like totally separated from a larger context, you know, it's like connected, you can really kind of, you know, it's like obviously like the speaker in this poem, you can't like generalize the experience like outward um, totally. But at the same time, you know, there is something that is kind of like identifiable broader and then to sort of just think about the the pain in this poem and like the the widespreadness of that when you think about these these like systemic historical things um and you know with masculinity too that like these sorts of dynamics of you know uh father-son relationships and um how how that is you know like yeah quite common um and that there are these these painful distances um that kind of emerge when yeah it's it's funny because it, it is kind of love languages when you put it like that i i mean it it tickles me um because i i mean that's like the one thing of like sort of uh, pop psych that I found the most useful in my own life. It's like, so um, it just like has such explanatory power. <laughs> um, so whoever came up with that, good job. Um, but it also does speak to like, that is kind of almost one of the, I mean, like, sort of recurring issues, I think, in masculinity and in like father-son relationships and stuff where there is a, a mismatch of love language. Um, and in some ways there's just not a mismatch, but there's just a lack of- <laughs> A lack of language, perhaps. A lack of language, perhaps. Um, which, is a yeah. common, which is a big theme, particularly in, I mean, I know it most from my own American cultural context uh, <laughs> and in American culture, just men being taciturn and that being seen as a sign of strength. I know we've talked about it before, at least glancingly on the podcast where, you know, it's a huge theme in Westerns, the strong, silent type, the cowboy who is incredibly skilled and does work on behalf of a community, but doesn't talk a lot, doesn't reveal a lot of themselves that shows up again in a different form in something like Star Wars, where the response to saying I love you is Han Solo saying I know, and that's like deeply romantic. Um, <laughs> and it carries on into any number of other pieces of popular culture that teach people, you know, what does it mean to be a man, um, which is changing for the better, uh, especially as, you know, more conversations about breaking up the gender binary uh, and thinking more broadly about gender uh, enter the mainstream. As you know, one of my favorite pieces is Angels in America, where literally the description of heaven is a place where there's gender confusion and all this other great stuff. <laughs> um, one of my favorite speeches. Yeah, that the this poem felt to me like a prism through which a lot of that was being refracted. Um, or I guess it was describing an experience and that experience kind of encompassed a lot of that. Uh, because yeah, I mean, it's basically the show don't tell of affection, <laughs> right? Where it's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing all this stuff. Obviously you should understand that I care about you, but like from the child's perspective, how am I ever going to know that if you don't tell me I'm a kid, the love of routine and the consistently caring acts can also then uh, become a level on which it kind of obscures how much it is an expression of affection, which I think is something that this poem also touches on. It's like, well, he always got up early, like did it on Sundays too. <laughs> he always made the fires every single Sunday. So like you don't 
that's the kind of thing where when it's happening, you don't realize how special it is because it's just what your existence is, kind of the positive side of what we're talking about with a house that's filled with chronic angers, a house that's warmed every Sunday when it just happens all the time. It's just what happens. It's sort of like the first time that you meet other people and or maybe you like go to a friend's house. Another like part of this film that I each new time that I read it, I appreciate more and more is like, you know, beyond the word choice, like the syntax and then the way that the sentences are happening are just like super interesting. Like the first stanza, there's two sentences and the first one is like really long. It's like Sundays too, my father got up early and it goes all the way down until in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. And then the second sentence is no one ever thanked him. One sentence, half a line rather than, you know, four and a half lines for the other sentence. And then there's, I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking, which is another, like the third sentence has its own line in the second stanza. And then we have another super long line. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and then it goes down all the way six lines until, and polish my good shoes as well. Um, and then that ends the sentence. And then it sort of closes out with the, what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? The other part that, that is striking to me too, you know, the first sentence is very, there's this one moment that has this kind of, it's almost confusing to read how the sentence goes. It's, a, it's strange, but like, so Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue, black, cold. Great, fine. Then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. The sentence in terms of like the subject and then the verb, it's like then with cracked hands made banked fires blaze. Like the hands is sub, like the thing that's doing the acting, the maid is the verb. And then the, you know, the banked fires is like what's being made. But in between that is like this kind of clause, like then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. And there's this extra part with like the stresses and the words so it is a sonnet, one of the one of the marvelous sonnets, um, and it's you know it's in the 1900s, so it's a little more, it's less formal, and it has kind of an odd stanza length for a sonnet, um, where you know oftentimes we have the four 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 two or the eight six, and this one has kind of a, um, <clears throat> well it's interesting because. So the stanzas are five, four, five, right? But then you can kind of think about it as the six and then the eight, but it's like weird, made in a weird way. So it's like Sundays two to no one ever thanked him. And then I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. And then that ends the sentence. It's not in the stanza, but like then this sentence comes like when the rooms were warm, he'd call and slowly I would rise and dress fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. Um, so there's sort of like a turn that slowly starts happening after the splintering and the breaking, which makes sense in terms of the, the cold, the, the kind of like, <laughs> what's happening with the cold is kind of going along with the turn of the poem. Um, in some kind of way. Um, and then we have a bit of a couplet ending with the like, what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? But it's like structured in a fairly strange way in terms of a traditional sonnet, um, I think deliberately so. But then with the stresses, there's that weird that ached from labor in the weekday weather. And then it's these four words that are all like stressed words, like, made banked fires blaze. Um, like it's really hard to say that as, as a, an example, I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. The first six words is a very classic iambic 
thing where you have a non-stress stress um, in the kind of like sonnet, like I'd wake and hear the cold, um, like wake and hear and cold are the stressed ones. And that's just how you would naturally say it. Um, but like, there's this weird, like this then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze that ends this long sentence that has this kind of like weird inserted clause about the hands aching. And then it's like the verb is like made comes in at the end of the line and then it's like made the banked fires blaze. So it sounds like made is like with the weekday weather, you know, because it's like on the same line as the weekday weather, even though it's actually leaving the clause about that and it's what the hands were doing. But it's also kind of like, it's making, and then banked fires blaze is like, and the maid, like there's these A sounds like that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. Um, lots of A sounds there, lots of Ds and hard consonants and then no one ever thanked him. And the thanked has kind of a rhymes with banked, but in this kind of weird sort of way, you know? So it's like sonically, rhythmically, syntactically very complex, I think. And then even like structurally in terms of the sonnet, it's very, it's, it's, you can kind of tease out the sonnet form I think there's a lot of things that all those things are doing. It speaks to the images that are being described where like when you get the fires and you get the warmth, that's like the intense kind of glorious thing. The banked fires blazing is like very punctuated and like cool. And there's also like a lot of labor in the syntax to get there, which maybe is a kind of miming of, of the the work that it takes to put the, the fire together with the kind of weird clauses in there. But at the same time, it also sets up this really stark contrast so that when you get to no one ever thanked him and the shortness and crispness and directness of that, like really kind of hits you, I think, where you have this pretty long sentence that is strange and sort of hard to read in some kind of way and then you get no one ever thanked him it's like it throws the rest of it in pretty stark relief which i think happens again sort of in a different way with the next sort of part of the poem where you have so you have the i'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking and then you have that long sentence of like when the rooms were warm and then you have just that last, what did I know? What did I know? Where again, I think it's, it's the repetition of what did I know, which again is like such, um, both the repeating of it is like so dramatic in a way um, and also direct um, in a way that the previous sentence, there's so many different parts to it. Like when the rooms were warm, he'd call, then I would rise and dress. I was fearing the chronic angers of that house. Then I was speaking. The sentence ends with like four different qualifications to the action of I would rise and dress, like fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him. And then it's modifying him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. So there's just like a lot going on. And then, and then it kind of, turns again in that that final sort of last two lines um and i'm not sort of doing justice to i think like all of the effects of the way that uh the poem is kind of using the tools of of language and sound and rhythm and sentence and line and form um but I just, I wanted to like point out a bunch of things and then speak to a couple different effects. And like, I, I think that you could really sit with, with those sort of dimensions to the poem and like 
the poem would keep giving and giving, um, which I think is why the other great thing about the poem is that it's something that you don't have to know to love it. And, it, and it's like, it's something that rewards these repeated readings. You know, a year later, I'm sure I'll come across it again and think about some other part of the poem. Yeah, I really like all of that because there is so many, there are so many different ways that this poem like syntactically messes with the form it's working in to the point, and even sort of thematically, like I was thinking about this time going through that you can even see the sort of turn possibly as being between the first nine lines and the last five, because it's in these three groupings of five, four, five around these parts. We're pretty comfortable that any 14 line poem we're happy to <laughs> put in the sonnet family, possibly yep. more on that to come in 2021. Stay tuned. But as I was reading through it, like the first two line, the first two stanzas are about what the father is doing and what the speaker is thinking of from their bed in the cold that is being warmed. And then the whole last five lines are about the connection. That's where they first speak to each other. That's where the shoes are polished. And that's where there's this actual adult reflection on the act. And you can, as you were saying, there are a couple of different points in this poem where you can see the, the sort of sonnet turn. Uh, and I was really sort of struck by thinking about it as a really kind of out there nine and five turn that's completely <laughs> not what you do in sonnets. But I feel like there is a significant switching point there as well, where it goes from being two people, sure, they're in the same, you know, house of chronic angers, but this is where their paths first cross and where the reflection on what their shared experience means. So even though the language no longer becomes about their interactions that are more direct, either speaking or the shoes, that last part is the reflection on what these independent actions, one going out and making the house warm, the other one receiving the gift of warmth, the reflection on what that meant is what happens in those last couple of lines. Uh, and I really, I really like that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really right. And especially this is, you can appreciate this with the, just the audio, but um, speaking as a word, which starts the last stanza is capitalized, even though it's in the middle of a sentence and it's not one of those poems that capitalizes the first word of, of every line. So um, I do, I do think highlighting the, the connection, how, like, however indifferent to the father in that last stanza, I think is, is really, really right on. Should we read it again? Let's do it. All right. This is Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know? of love's austere and lonely offices. So, Jack. What's up? I was just wondering on your own winter days, you've been thinking about this poem, but I'm wondering, are there other things that you're reading, watching, listening to, consuming in some sort of capitalist or anti-capitalist or non-capitalist fashion? <laughs> you know, just um, a simple question. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, I, I'm glad that there's like no 
incredibly uh, political overlay to my consumption. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do think about that a lot. Uh, yeah, well, I have been spending a lot of time thinking about this poem, and as a result of thinking about it, reading quite a bit of other Robert Hayden poetry, because uh, I'm not as well-versed as I would like to be or really should be in his his work, so... That has definitely been part of my reading experience. Definitely recommend that. But on the theme of like those winter Sundays and kind of like comfort, comfort culture, let's call it. Uh, <laughs> there is a series of mystery books that I have, I don't know that I have actually read a physical copy of one beginning to end ever in my life, but I have repeatedly listened to the audiobooks many, many, many times and that is the Cat Who Mysteries by Lillian Jackson Braun, which are about James McIntosh Quilleran, a one-time award-winning crime writer and journalist uh, who falls on hard times before we meet him in the series. We meet him in the series as he is on an upswing after the dissolution of a poor marriage and a bout of alcoholism. He is scrounging for any work he can get, and he gets a job as a feature writer at the Daily Fluxion, and during his first assignment, he becomes the adoptive parent of a Siamese cat named Kao Kokung, or Coco, as he is most commonly known. And this cat, it turns out, has almost psychic abilities, and they aid in Quillerin's natural inclination to find himself in the vicinity of crimes. And so... Over the course of the first few books in the series, he and Coco move to different apartments around the city, and they solve crimes there. Usually Coco does things like knock books off the shelf that have titles that end up spurring Quillerin to figure out who did the crime. And then Lillian Jackson Braun had an idea, which was, what if I stop writing books about this journalist in a city... And instead, I make him a billionaire who lives in a small town 400 miles, quote unquote, north of everywhere in a place called Moose County. Oh, no. In a town called Pickaxe. <laughs> and so for the next, like, 25 books in the series, Jim Quillerin is the inheritor of the Klingenshin fortune, which he establishes a charitable foundation for that brings large numbers of arts institutions to small town Pickaxe population 3000 and moose county more generally and it basically allows him to do whatever he wants whenever he needs to which is a brilliant plot device if you're writing serialized crime books along the way still while they're down they're quote unquote down below which is what locals in moose county call the rest of the country uh <laughs> he also adopts another siamese cat named yum yum and so coco and yum yum are his uh compatriots as he solves small town crimes in these cozy mysteries so if you want just like a fun weird read check out the cat who mysteries by lillian jackson braun damn that sounds fascinating there's something read by george guidel who has a very soothing voice quilleran <laughs> also has a giant mustache which is a regular plot point and he gets uh tingles in his mustache whenever there's like crime uh -oh, clues percolating no. yeah so that's another part of it amazing so that's the cat who mysteries what have you, what have you been reading <laughs> oh gosh well or listening to or watching or you know consuming yeah. in a capitalist or anti-capitalist or non-capitalist <laughs> well yeah a few things the thing that's been most interesting um as someone who likes jazz as a genre, but who is not um, super like up on the contemporary scene, I find it difficult to like, I have like artists that I like and then I listen to their new albums from time to time, but I don't have a good sense of like, oh, this is a good new album that, you know, just came out or something. So the end of the year, like is the only time that, the major outlets um you know like seriously compile their list of good jazz albums i mean they do a that you know there's reviews here and there but so um this album uh omega by emmanuel wilkins um came out this year and he's an alto sax saxophonist 
I I play the sax, I play the alto, so that that appealed to me. Um, this made a, a lot of the lists um, for for um, one of the best al- one of the best jazz albums. Um, he's like really young. He's like twenty two or something. This album is insanely good. <laughs> It is like high power. Nice. Um, and it's cool because, all right, I'm going to do some real hot takes on jazz. A lot of people, jazz musicians are technically virtuosic. Like, so they're all so good. I mean, the ones who are really good, they're just like, the ones like, it's just, they're just so good. It's crazy. But a lot of times, at least for me, who's especially not like, you know, I'm not getting all the musical references and quotations that they're throwing into their, you know, wild solos. It's like, it's like emotionally sometimes a little lacking to me, if you know what I mean. And then the ones that are like more emotional, I don't know. Sometimes it's just like, it's not my vibe. This one is like intense. He's so good, but it's like, it feels like urgent in a kind of way. When I was reading about the album, he's he's like, um, you know, there's one song called like Ferguson American Tradition. Um, and so there's definitely like, like a, you know, liberatory spiritual black aesthetic that's trying to be captured uh in this in this album but um it's a quartet it's banging it's intense omega manuel wilkins he's 22 wow (sighs) that's really cool i'm most familiar with that sort of technical versus feel conversation obviously i play guitar um, so I'm most familiar with it in that context, but that's absolutely the case where there are people who are incredibly technically skilled and they can shred a million notes a minute, but you end <laughs> up not feeling a whole lot necessarily. You can kind of marvel at the technical achievement in their playing, but there's usually a threshold for that. Um, I have a much lower threshold, uh, for just like feel players. I, I, that's kind of, I, I respond to that on, you know, much more quickly, but there are those who kind of hit the sweet spot of having both. And that is so special for obviously like the standard, uh, like guitar example of somebody like Stevie Ray Vaughan, who's an incredibly technically skilled player, one of the best ever. And still you get an intense sense of feeling in his music, especially when you see it performed because he was such an intense performer, but even on record, there's like, there is something else going on behind the flurry of notes and you really feel that. Um, and I'm going to have to check out Omega. This sounds so good. It's really good. Yeah. And I just feel like, and this is why I'm like, I want to, I wish I could like find it. Like with poetry, I feel like I have a, I have a sense of my own taste enough. And then I also like know the scene well enough where like I can kind of like, it's easier for me to explore new things and like not get overwhelmed with jazz, I don't, I, I like am constantly overwhelmed and like don't know what I'm getting myself into a lot of the time. But the good stuff that's coming out right now, I feel like is so good because like, especially like, I don't know, there's there's like a lot of um, just like both work that's doing stuff with, you know, engaging with like hip hop and also like, um, you know, like computer, production stuff in in a way that's still like hella good jazz and that's like pretty exciting um and then there's also just like i feel like i'm sure it's never really left but like really like political jazz um that i don't know it's like and i think this is really this is really one of those albums um so yeah it's just it's cool it's cool check it out very nice i will check that out probably 
between now and our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>